The Gist is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist. It's Tuesday, June 30th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So here in New York, it is a break with tradition. Did you hear that break? No, the break isn't the propriety between mayor and governor. Maybe you heard about that blasting each other. Hey, look, there's a bus. Let's throw each other under that de Blasio and Cuomo. We're talking about this kind of break. In New York City, it is the end of foam. It is the last day you can buy, you can consume, you can put a pea pod upon. I think even that you can mention foam. No more foam after today in New York City. This has led to the latest acronym. You know, the kids are using these acronyms on Twitter. It's FOMOOF, fear of missing out on foam. If you want to take out that last on, it could be FOMOF, and that's also a palindrome, F-O-M-O-F. So I have a pile of foam in front of me. Doesn't make a big sound, but that's a pile of foam. So I understand that by July 1st, I'm not going to be able to eat any foam. So I have to consume all the foam right now. Now, I have to say, I grew up Catholic a little bit. And communion wafers aren't that different. I don't know how many of these plates I could get down. I have some fun foam facts. Did you know a soft drink in a foam cup will have more carbonation in it than the same soft drink in a paper cup? That's true. We're, I guess we're banning the sale of foam. That's why I'm eating it now, because we're trying to avoid a foam bubble. Mike, this when is not... When you think about it, Mike, foam is a plural of bubble. Yeah, I agree with myself. I think you're really misinterpreting this new foam regulation. It I gotta really, get it down. It's not about it eating it. It's about businesses selling foam products. It's about foam packaging. It's oh. about... So it's not like... If, if someone's foam-worthy? I just couldn't decide if he was really sponge-worthy. <laughs> let me just take this out of my mouth and ask you then this. Why'd you let me eat three plates so far? I thought it would be good for you. No. Right. I thought it would have beneficial aeration qualities, like mm-hmm. in potting soil. Okay. She's trying to kill me, people. On the show today, I spiel about the 14th Republican to run for president, Chris Christie. We break down the sounds of his candidacy, but not the ones coming out of his mouth, necessarily. But first, with the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage, a new era in equality, acceptance, and just a little bit of fretting within the gay community about what might change. So you remember last Friday, the world went crazy in rainbows. The White House went all rainbow. Everyone was all happy. Well, not everyone, not your Ted Cruz's. But there was a lot of joy. There was a lot of gay, if you will. Yet someone, some sick individual said, you know what we need to put on the front page of the New York Times the next day? This headline, historic day for gays, but twinge of loss for an outsider culture. And echoing this sentiment was Brian Lauder, who wrote... To be sure, marriage equality is on balance a great good for us in all kinds of ways, both material and spiritual, but it may also have, yes, some unintended consequences that aren't so positive. Brian's here. Brian Louder's the associate editor at Slate. He edits and writes for the Outward section. Hey, Brian. Hello. So I hadn't considered this. I know that 
everything is not always a good thing and there are some unintended consequences. But the word in the Times headline, you know, not the arbiter for where the gay movement stands, but is twinge. And I'm also getting the sense that it's like, well, the positive aspects of gay culture as we know them will never be the same because as I think you were talking about on NPR, Mm -hmm. gay people had so many different variations of how they could define their lives. And now the assumption is, well, marriage will be the definition just like it is with straight culture. That's right. I mean, historically, we didn't have marriage as an option. So it was just not something that if you were like, you know, a little gay kid, you you weren't planning your wedding. You were trying to figure out how to just live, really. But but when when it came time to sort of figure out how you were going to organize your romantic life, there were lots of options because there wasn't this sort of expected path uh, in the same way that it, that I think it generally is with straight folks. Uh, and so I do wonder if, if we're going to lose some of that imagination. Um, I mean, you could you could be in a monogamous marriage-like relationship. And plenty of people, as we've seen with the decision, a lot of people who've been together 50 years, you know, are getting married now. And that's a beautiful thing. But there are many other gays who, you know, maybe never had a monogamous relationship or who's had, had sort of a community of lovers or found just found other ways of relating to each other. And, and that was something that was exciting about gay culture. That's not all of gay culture, mm-hmm. but that's part of it. It's something that may fade. And, you know, I, I think the pressure to get married you know, we have the freedom to marry. It may quickly become the the coercion or the pressure to marry. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I would question the twinge, the idea of Uh the twinge, based on a couple things. One, when throughout history, at least when, you know, post-Stonewall, has gay culture ever been static? So there haven't been these times when we could say it starts here, it ends here. Sure, there are eras, the AIDS era, the pre-AIDS era, gay rights. Liberation. You know, sure, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. But since it's never been static, why is the idea we're losing what gay culture meant since what gay culture meant is so many different things over the years? For sure. And a lot of people would, would accuse me and have accused me of, of a certain kind of nostalgia, right? Right. So yeah. I, I like in my mind, the best time to be gay. Uh, and I want to sort of there's caveats to this, but in, in a certain sense, the best time to be gay was like maybe the 70s. Right. Mm-hmm. When post Stonewall, we have liberation. Everything's really exciting. People are coming out. It's it's a time to, you know, really find community and build community. There are lots of downsides to being around then, too, of course. Like, you know, you, you could be arrested. There are all kinds of things. But in terms of uh, sort of inside the community, that seems to me looking, you know, someone who didn't live it, but who, who has uh, studied it a lot, seems to me the, to have been the most exciting time. Then we had the AIDS crisis, uh, which definitely changed everything. And then in the 90s, we had this emergence of of the sort of Andrew Sullivan argument for marriage and for sort of integration into uh, a lot of these mainstream institutions. So you're exactly right. This is this has always been changing. Uh, And so it's it is there is an aspect of my argument that is perhaps a little a little nostalgic or a little stuck in the mud. Uh, and, And that's fair. But as far as the best time to be gay was the 70s, you weren't alive. No, no. When were you born? 87. Okay, 87. So you missed it by a long shot. Mm-hmm. And I would submit that people who are political today, younger people who are what I would define as younger people, who are political, look at the time of the greatest politization and say that was the time. Yeah. Like, you know, anti-war activists will say the 60s, sure. right? Civil rights activists will say maybe the early 60s, maybe when we first started getting civil rights. You know, and then we think about how good we have it. And instead of saying, well, that means we have it good. You know, we sometimes interpret that as, you know, so we got complacent. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I 
mourn is a strange word for me to use since I wasn't there again, but that is kind of the way I feel about it. The thing that I sort of miss about the 70s, if I can say it that way, is that there felt like there were a lot of possibilities at that moment. We had people who were sort of gay exceptionalists saying we should have separatist lives and like organize our own communities and not be trying to, to even deal with straight people at all. There were those that wanted to integrate and wanted to get things like marriage, uh, although that wasn't a huge discussion at the time, but it was certainly in the air. You know, there were people who were in between those positions and all over the place. It feels like post-AIDS, the activism and the sort of movement went in a very limited direction. And yeah. increasingly so, it feels like it's harder and harder to imagine other kinds of possibilities. Well, that's So you're right. The, that's the, that the excitement, is, as far as I understand it, was was much more possible than, than it feels perhaps like it is now. Yeah. Well, that's because of the old idea. There's nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the animating, Great. one of the animating features of AIDS. Great phrase. You mentioned Andrew Sullivan. He was one of the people who first started really banging the drum for gay marriage. In 2005, like right, maybe 2006, he writes this article for The New Republic about the end of gay culture. Yeah, 05, I think. Yeah. yeah. Last year, he has a blog post saying... It's been nearly a decade since I wrote The End of Gay Culture for The New Republic, but only now that the small drip, drip, drip of change seems to have reached a tipping point. Is it true? Is that like, yes, Sullivan is putting his finger on when gay culture is changing accurately, or is that just a part of everyone who looks at the old neighborhood gentrifying and everyone who looks back? I don't know if you want to call it nostalgia, but everyone who looks back is going to say, you know, but it's really now that things have changed. Sullivan is such an interesting figure on the question of gay culture and is it is it dead or is it alive or what's because happening I think to it? I think it's generational. Yeah. I think for a guy his age, maybe he's right. But for a guy your age, maybe you're not. And for guys younger than you, for the 22-year-old who, ne- who wasn't thinking about marriage now – they would never think about gay culture in the way that he does or you Absolutely. You do. No, and, and I mean, some people would argue, so I wrote this long piece called What Was Gay a, yeah. a month ago or two months ago now. Um, uh, people would argue about Sullivan's position that, that get his gay culture might be over or or the use value of gay culture for him may not be uh, there anymore. What does that mean? I don't know. So what I mean by that value. is like, like, we need gay culture when we don't feel like we totally fit into society, into mainstream society. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, we need for, this thing called gay culture. Yeah, yeah, so we identify strongly, most strongly with it when we feel like more like outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Sullivan, who are, you know, white men, cisgendered, so not trans, middle class or wealthy, um, you know, sort of the only thing about them that's separating them from the mainstream is their gayness. Being in that position nowadays is not very hard anymore. Like increasingly so, and, and now with marriage equality, that doesn't really de- define you that much anymore or separate you. It doesn't you. have to. It doesn't have to, yeah. right, yeah. exactly. And, I, you know, of course, I'm in a lot of those categories with him. Uh, so so I'm, I'm kind of weird in that I choose to, to still identify strongly with gay culture. But he doesn't, and he doesn't need it. And so I think, I think it's interesting. You know, he's a polemicist, so he can declare that it's dead for everybody. I think it really is only dead for him and people like him. In this Times article, they start talking about art. They say curators and art critics said they could not name a recent work about sexual orientation with the impact of Maplethorpe. Mm -hmm. That I'd agree with. I mean, Maplethorpe was, sure, Herring, Warhol, Maplethorpe has been anyone as great in the world of visual arts since then or as impactful. Probably not. And then they go go on to say, in theater, playwrights say there will never be another The Normal Heart. Larry Kramer's 1985 Creed Accord about AIDS mm. or Angels in America. Sure, they'll never be those, but what's to say there won't be other amazing works of gay playwriting or movies? And, you know, I think about Brokeback Mountain. I think about sure. this seems a trap 
this seems a trap of trying to put your finger on culture at any time and saying there'll never be another thing like that because there's almost always another thing like that. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that 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 one thing I want to say about that is like limiting it to the arts is kind of a limited way of thinking about gay culture. But mm-hmm. even inside of that, I think that. Uh, no, there's been great movies that are that are sort of gay themed. One that I always think about in recent years was Lilting, which was this beautiful movie with Ben Wishaw yeah. uh, about uh, a gay couple, who, one of whom had died, and him dealing with that guy's mother. I mean, it was it was it was incredible. Uh, and there and there's tons of art coming out that that is very much focused on these questions. The questions are different now. It's not so much maybe about coming out. Right as a as a as a theme as it would have been in the past, right. and certainly uh, AIDS as a sort of shadow over a lot of the art, especially the art that was mentioned there, mm-hmm. uh, is is no longer quite as relevant, uh, or, or at least looked at the same way. But no, I don't I don't think that that sexual orientation or gayness as a sort of theme that artists want to explore is anywhere near exhausted at all. Yeah, the article says, you know, on television shows, gay themes and humor are integrated seamlessly, almost casually, as on Orange is the New Black and Broad City, to which I'd say, yes, good, but not at the exclusion of shows like HBO's Looking, right, yeah. or shows that could never have even existed 20 years ago in, in that big a format. There are, like, amazing debates going on about what even those shows mean. So between something like Looking, which I didn't care for very much for political reasons uh, that I won't bore you with here, but that show versus something like Cucumber and Banana, which was a, a British import to Logo, that I thought was amazing and, like, totally about gayness and queerness and, and really saying relevant things about what it's like to be young and gay today versus uh, and also uh, inter- intergenerational. So, no, I think there's still a lot of vibrant stuff to be said there, yeah. uh, and, and it's nowhere near exhausted. So I guess the analogy that people always make, gay culture, black culture, you know, carries with them mm-hmm. a raft of uh, those analogies carry baggage with it. I was thinking of Jewish culture and the idea of assimilation. And, you know, 100 years ago to be Jewish was really distinct and it probably was very tied into religiosity. And now in America, it doesn't mean to be. So as Jewish culture changed, I think that it's just become a lot of different things. And you could see people living that life almost exactly like they did in 1910, right? Or you could see every version between that and some guy who says, yeah, 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 my parents were Jewish, but I couldn't even, you know, name which letter comes after Aleph in the right, Hebrew Aleph. Right, right. Well, and it's like, can you... The thing that interests me about talking about Jewish culture or gay culture, uh, both of those are like sort of ethnicities, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jewishness very much is one. Right. I define gay gayness as something that's quasi-ethnic or pseudo-ethnic. It is, because uh, you could disappear into it if you want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. That's a yeah. it's very interesting comparison to me. And what I like to think about is can we distill either Jewishness or gayness into practices. So not just, you know, do you do this thing or care about this icon or have you read that book? It's more about how you approach the world. And so I think some people might argue that there's a Jewish way of looking at the world. We would could debate what that is. And I'm not Jewish, so I, I probably couldn't debate it. But, but, yeah, but gayness... So you, might, you might know a little bit but about gayness, it. But gayness, I do. I <laughs> the do sense have, of humor. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the guilt well, and, and it, the world weariness. Well, you know, in Sontag, Susan Sontag always said that, uh, that Jews and gays were the ones that defined the 20th century in terms yeah. of sensibilities. So, I mean, that I think that's, that's really powerful in a, in a sort of telling uh, relationship. It's something we're thinking about. If we had to fast forward to this marriage ruling, politically, there's still the hurdle of actual equal rights and non-discrimination yeah. laws in the majority of the states. Absolutely. So that's a bit. And then also getting every, uh, you know, stupid county official to allow marriage Actually to do happen. their job. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> okay. But, you know, do you have a prediction? Do you think that in two generations in 40 years, 
when we look at the idea of gay culture, will it be something you visit in a museum? That's a really great question. I hope not. Um, I don't think so. I think that certain things that have been called gay culture will be treated that way. So I, I don't know that we will be talking about, you know, uh, sort of camp diva icons in the same way, maybe. And that's already happening. A lot of a, young, a lot of younger gays don't care about Judy Garland or Joan Crawford. That kind of historically specific gayness, I think, will absolutely be a museum piece. I think gayness as sort of a, a set of practices or a way of being in the world, like I was saying earlier, will continue and, and morph and change for the people using it. Uh, and I think there are a lot of younger people, especially gay people of color, maybe not white men like Andrew Sullivan and me, but but other people who are in other minority communities who are using the same, I don't know, practices of resistance and coping that gayness has granted to all of us in different ways now. Their struggles are not anywhere close to being over, uh, and transgender individuals also. The same kinds of things that gay men have used in the past to sort of get by and, and form community and, and, and make it in a hostile world, uh, they can be used by other groups. Do you think if you were who you are but 40 years in the future, you'd find something similar to the gay community? There'd be such a thing? Do you think, you know, the... Uh, Brian Lauder, born in the year 2035. All right, he realizes he's gay whenever he's a teenager. And so that means the people he associates with are mostly gay. Does that mean that, you know, most of his dealings uh, socially are with other gay people? Will that be really a viable thing that a lot of people have available to them? It may not be. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, some sociologists uh, I've talked to have said that the, one of the main trends they're seeing among queer youth now is is a lack of that kind of association. So in the past, yes, Brian Lauder of, of 87 or, or earlier would have formed uh, a, a really strong gay friend network, right, as a way of sort of figuring out who he was and, and, and finding community and all of that. That is happening less and less. Friend groups are getting more and more diverse, which is in some ways a great thing. Uh, and I think in the future, I imagine it will continue that way. I, I'd be surprised if you went back to uh, such a, as much of a limited kind of thing. But you also lose some of that the power that concentration can bring. Uh, we might literally lose places like Fire Island or gay enclaves, yeah, yeah. that idea. Absolutely. No, the gay enclave is something that I think is at risk as well. Uh -huh. Yeah. Brian Lauder is an associate editor of Slate. He edits and works on the Outward section. I recommend his, we call them frescas, this is when you do a really big piece. And Brian's contemplation, what was gay, is certainly worth your time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much. And if Brian seemed smart and inviting, well, guess what? He is. And you can see him live along with Mark Joseph Stern and June Thomas. They are contributors to the Outward blog. On Monday, July 13th, they're doing an event at City Winery. Evan Wolfson, the lawyer behind same-sex marriage, and Ted Allen, queer eye for the straight guy Ted Allen, will be there. It's Monday, July 13th. Check it out. Go to slate.com slash nycoutward. So you heard about our ban here in New York. It's actually a ban on expanded polystyrene foam. So that's the EPS expanded polystyrene foam, not the premium latex foam and memory foam. Oh no, those are the kinds of foams that are the mainstay of a Casper mattress. Casper offers premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. When we say fraction, what fraction do we mean? You know, do you know 150 is a fraction of 100? It's three halves. So I'm gonna get down to brass tacks. By the way, there's some brass 
bedding available, but not the Casper mattress. As I said, that's a latex foam in the memory foam. So a mattress, regular mattress, $1,500. The most a Casper mattress costs. We're talking about the king size, 950 bucks. You get a twin size for 500 bucks. What if you don't like the twin size? Take your time, decide. Because the other great thing about Casper is that they have a 100-day return period. Free delivery, sleep on that mattress, and take 99 days to decide, you know, it's a little uncomfortable, even though the price was great. So I want to give you a special offer to $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash gist. That's casper.com slash gist for your $50 off towards any mattress. And now the spiel, born to run. Chris Christie was once considered the front runner. Now we can only hope for Donald Trump's numbers in the polls. Bush's prowess at fundraising, Kasich's actual record of in-state accomplishment, and Huckabee's appeal to the religious. But Chris Christie can make a speech. And so today he did. I am not running for president of the United States as a surrogate for being elected prom king of America. When I stand up on a stage like this in front of all of you, there is one thing you will know for sure. I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, and that's what America needs right now. By turns defiant and resilient, Christie did his best to turn a weakness, he's a bully, into a strength, he's a straight shooter. And that's not really too surprising. Indeed, most of Christie's speech wasn't too surprising. It turns out he had parents and grandparents who worked and struggled to give their children and grandchildren a better life. You know, you can pretty much play proper name Mad Libs with these political speeches, right? Christie's father was accepted to Columbia. He couldn't afford it, so he wound up working in an ice cream plant. Hey, Dick Gephardt's dad drove a milk truck. Are you listening, Wisconsin voters? Anyway, Chris Christie did come up with two things that I thought were new, though neither was a policy proposal. One was more of a formulation, a surprising assertion that begged you to consider it. We face a country that's not angry. When I hear the media say that our country is angry, I know they're wrong. Last year, I went to 37 different states across this country in one year. I met people in every corner of America, and they are not angry. Americans are not angry. Americans are filled with anxiety. Not angry. Not angry, huh? Well, there's an interesting argument, especially coming from Christie, a guy known for yelling at a voter while continuing to lick his ice cream cone. So that was different. But this was also different. Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Chris Christie. This one goes out to the man who minds for miracles. This one goes out to the ones in need. You hear that song? It is by New Jersey native son, John Bon Jovi. And in a break with what I think is an annoying tradition of musicians saying they don't want their songs played at political rallies, Bon Jovi, a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, said, sure, play my song. Bon Jovi cited the work that he and the governor did together after Hurricane Sandy. But you also get the sense that John Bon Jovi understands that when you make music, that music doesn't belong to you. This is not the lesson that was taken by Neil Young, who told Donald Trump to cool it with Rockin' in the Free World, or Tom Petty, who threatened Michelle Bachman with a lawsuit for using American Girl, or Hart telling Sarah Palin not to play Barracuda, or, well, let me now quote the Dropkick Murphys. Here's a tweet they sent. 
from the Dropkick Murphys account, at Scott Walker, at Gov Walker, please stop using our music in any way. We literally hate you, three exclamation marks. Love, Dropkick Murphys. I don't know, that one was kind of Dylan-esque. It was laden with double meanings. It's quite ambiguous what they meant there. Now, it is true that Jackson Brown successfully sued Senator John McCain for using his hit Running on Empty in a campaign ad, and that David Byrne sued Governor Charlie Crist of Florida for using the talking head's road to nowhere, and then Charlie Crist had to give an videotaped apology, kind of awkward. But since those uses of rock songs were in ads, and since the venues that politicians appear in in public pay ASCAP fees and royalties, and since rallies are free, I actually think that politicians are within their rights to play any song they damn well please. And yeah, rockers are within their rights to do like the Dropkick Murphys did if they want. But don't the musicians realize that their songs are played before all sorts of disreputable events in disreputable venues, like in bars where drunks are about to hit the road, or at parties where underage drinking is taking place, or in the case of the group Rush at Rush concerts? No, I'm kidding. I kind of love Rush. The other very satisfying thing about the Bon Jovi acquiescence is that you know he was Chris Christie's second choice. Christie is a Springsteen devotee. He has been to hundreds of Springsteen concerts, but Springsteen will not give Christie permission. And the specific song that Bon Jovi gave... Well, let's just say, unlike Chris Christie's candidacy, I wouldn't put it in the top 14 of Bon Jovi's songs. We weren't born. When life is handing you some lemons, you go ahead and make some lemonade. When the president offers health care, you say, thanks, I'll stick with Medicaid. You hope that no one really examines your budgetary math or that you kind of messed up when you said, we need to have the courage to course, to course a new path for America. If you believe Bon Jovi Springsteen, if you believe this crap song's good, then I've got a bridge I wanna sell ya, and I've got a candidate for you. And that's it for today's show. The GIST producer, Andrea Salenzi, along with managing producer, Joel Meyer, carpool to Trenton all the time where they have a question. The two questions are always asked. One, what's your favorite color? Always. Second, they always ask me, what's your best part of your job? To which the governor says, it's being friends with John Bon Jovi. Oh, God. Andy Bowers, as executive producer of Panoply, isn't your friend. He's not looking to make friends. You know what else he's not looking to do? I am not looking to be the most popular guy who looks in your eyes every day and tries to figure out what you want to hear, say it, and then turn around and do something else. The gist. So why are we named the gist? Well, I'll tell you. I wanted this show to be named Leadership Matters for America, but a certain New Jersey politician wanted that name too. So we settled it like men. We flipped a coin. I called heads. And it was tails. Thus, I ended with the gist. And also strangely stuck in traffic every day for about a year. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <clears throat> I actually have little flecks of styrofoam in my mouth. Not my mouth. My Not good. And that will die with me, apparently, as I understand biodegradability.